0: If you have your Bible with you, please open it with me to Hebrews chapter 6. The title of today's sermon is Fair-Weather Christians. And what we find out in our text today is that when we use the term Fair-Weather Christians, we can put air quotes or scare quotes around the word Christians. Because while these individuals may present themselves as Christians, while they may attend church, while they may speak about Christ, and otherwise do many of the things that you or I would identify as things that Christians do. According to our text this morning, there are many of those types of individuals who, when things get difficult, when times get hard for believers, and it begins to cost them something to follow Christ, and when they find that the church no longer provides socially, financially, or emotionally, proves to be emotionally, financially, or socially profitable to them, then just as quickly as it came, their Christian convictions disappear. And following Christ disappears from their lives. At least until the hardship passes and following Christ again seems profitable to them. This is part of what's happening among the Hebrew believers addressed here in Hebrews chapter 6. Remember last week, we were told of their disinterest in the things of God, specifically their lack of concern for His Word. This has made them ignorant of difficult doctrinal matters. Their faith was built on very little then, as we have seen. Theologically speaking, we've seen that their faith is built on very little. Because of this, they were prone to lapses back into Jewish tradition. In effect, when it benefited them, to do so, they were leaving Christ behind. And so the author of Hebrews warns them that Christianity is not a come and go as you please religion. You don't leave Christ simply because it's convenient to do so. Christ deserves and even demands your unrelenting obedience. He's not a God who shares His glory with another. So by turning back from Christ, they are demonstrating something extremely dangerous, and that is that they are or were unregenerate. That though they profess to be Christians, they have only shared in what true Christians fully enjoy. They had only tasted in what true Christians wholly consume. And thus, their fair-weather Christianity is proving to be no Christianity at all. And therefore, the guilt of their sins remains upon them. And even worse, because they reject Christ after having so richly and clearly seen the goodness of His grace at work in the church, then the punishment for their apostasy will be even greater than if they had never heard the Gospel at all. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 6 where we will see the exhortation that the author lays out in verses 4 through 8. And Once you've found your way there, please stand with me as we read from the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that so often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, instruct us in Your Word this morning. Allow us to be filled by its truth that we might go on, from this place and live according to its principles. Sanctify us by your Holy Spirit this morning as we meet in this gathering. We praise you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1678 book, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by the Puritan author John Bunyan, we are introduced to a character early on whose name is Pliable. This is a character of whom we should all take note. If you're not familiar with the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, it is written as an allegory of the Christian life. The main character's name, of course, is Christian, and on his journey to the celestial city, he meets various individuals who each represent different vices and virtues which Christians confront in life, each of which Bunyan identifies by their name. Early in his journey, Christian encounters an individual whose name is Pliable. Considering what I just told you about the significance of names, you can already see where this is going. Pliable was Christian's neighbor in the city of destruction. And while at first Pliable tried to persuade Christian to stay in the city of destruction, he soon became intrigued by Christian's journey and by the joys which Christian said awaited them. And so Pliable decided to go with Christian to this celestial city. Even at points during the way, wanting Christian to go faster, go faster on the journey so they can get there sooner and get to the joys of the celestial city. However, when they both reach the first obstacle, the pit of despond, where each must face the weight of his own sins, Pliable finds the journey to be altogether unpleasant. And so after journeying with Christian just a short way, he turns back to the city of destruction, unwilling to endure the hardship of the journey, but instead wanting to go home. Pliable represents the fair-weather Christian, the one who goes along while the going is good, but then when trials come, when they are made to confront hardship, they turn back and they show their true nature, that they are not truly a regenerate man. Writing this story, John Bunyan was well aware of the difficulties which accompanied the Christian life. Bunyan had been arrested for preaching the gospel without a license from the state church in England. And if he would have simply confessed his wrongs, scare quotes again, his wrongs, then he would have been released. But John Bunyan was not a fair-weather Christian. And he would not turn from his God. So for twelve years, John Bunyan sat in prison, trusting in God to provide not just for his own needs, but also for the needs of his wife and his four children. It's safe to say that John Bunyan was not pliable. He had secure, unwavering hope in Jesus Christ. Our text this morning encourages us to be unwavering in the same way. Not to be like those who turn back from doing what is right and what is good. Not to be fair-weather Christians, but instead to prepare ourselves for foul weather. And we need to note right from the start here that there are those who improperly apply this text of Scripture. Right here in Hebrews 6, 4-8. through 8. There are. And certainly, it is a difficult text. But I do believe that with proper hermeneutical principles, we can rightly understand it. And one important principle to keep in mind when tackling difficult text is that we need to work from the known to the unknown, from the clear to the unclear. Some will go to Hebrews 6, verse 6, and read the phrase, fallen away, and immediately assume that this is a reference to Christians losing their faith, losing their salvation. However, if we work from the clear to the unclear, then what we'll find is that that interpretation is an in error. Because what's clear in Scripture is that a true Christian, someone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, cannot lose their salvation. Meaning that they will not reject their Savior, they will not return to their old way of living, they will not proceed in unrepentant sin. If a person is truly saved. It doesn't mean that they are perfect. It doesn't even mean that they won't have setbacks in life. But it does mean that the Holy Spirit will ensure that they persevere in the Christian faith until the end, right? until their death. And if they do not, then it's clear that they were never a true Christian. Let me take you to some text where this is clear. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Those who belong to Christ continue in Christ. Those who seem to go out from Christ prove that they never were in Christ. They weren't with Christ. It's that simple. Here's another text. Romans chapter 8, verse 35-37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There is no force stronger than the love of Christ. Not in all of existence. And so if, as a true Christian, you are held by the love of Christ, then nothing can separate you. From it. Nothing can detach you, nothing can steal you away from Christ. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, or famine, or danger, or sword, and no, not even you. You are not more powerful than the love of Christ. Well, you may say, well, what if my depraved nature wells up inside of me and causes me to reject the Gospel. What then? Well, first, you were totally depraved when God, in His sovereignty, saved you. He drew you to Himself when there was nothing in you which was inclined to Him. Ephesians 2, 4-5 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By His great love He saved you. And by His great love, He keeps you. Second, if you are a Christian, you no longer have a depraved nature. You have the flesh, Romans 7:17 7, and 18. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. But the benefit, the benefit provided by Christ is that you are no longer a slave to the flesh. You're a new creature. You have a new nature, and therefore, even the flesh is something foreign to you, something that you can overcome. Romans 6, 6 through 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So all that to say is that there is no force, not externally, and not internally, which can separate a Christian from the love of Christ. Let me provide one more verse to support that. John 10, 28 and 29. I gave them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Again, is Satan able to tempt you to the point of apostasy, therein snatching you out of the Father's hand? Not if God has truly given you eternal life. Can I ask, how long is eternal life? It's eternal, of course. God doesn't provide you with four years' life. He doesn't provide you with ten or twenty years' life. He says here in the text that He gives you eternal life. A life that has no end, that's what eternal means. So, whatever salvation you have that you think is from God, if it ends, then it is not clearly from God. Because what God gives you is eternal. The salvation that God provides is eternal, it has no end. And He is the one who ensures that it will be eternal. God does. Not you, not me, not anyone else. As John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it was up to you you'd be done before it even started thankfully it's not up to you it's god who brings our salvation to completion philippians 1 verse 6 and i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of christ jesus he does this it's the golden chain of redemption we all know it from romans 8 29 through 30 for those whom he foreknew speaking of god For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He, 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 He. He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. No gaps, no caveats, no qualifications. God will bring you from beginning to end. This is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And it is clear in Scripture. Now when we come to Hebrews chapter 6, we need to read that text in light of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. So what does the author mean, the author of Hebrews, what does he mean? when he writes in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. I think that the answer is found in the verbs used in the text. There are people who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They have, again, tasted in the goodness of the Word of God. I believe that the emphasis of these words is meant to indicate that these people were not, we thought they were Christians, right? We thought they were Christians. We were right there in church with them. They participated in the gathering, experienced the Christian religion, but they never really were Christians themselves. We thought they were, but they fell away. Just like we read in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So they're not. We thought they were Christians. They were there with us. They tasted these things. They shared these things. But in the end, we saw, saw that they weren't, because they left us. I think this is a sobering text, I have three ways in which this text confronts us this morning. First, I want to confront the fair-weather Christians. This is where the author believes many of those reading this letter are. He says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He believes that many of them are probably Christians, but that they are in they are engaging in something that is exceedingly dangerous. And some of them may prove the author's optimistic assumption to be wrong. Next, I want to confront the apostates, those who claimed the name of Christ but never truly placed their faith in Jesus and now are living once again in rebellion. Finally, I want to give an exhortation to true believers. I want to encourage them to prepare for foul weather, To be ready to stand in difficult times, knowing with confidence that God, in His providence, will persevere them to the end. So those are the three points of application this morning. We're going to confront fair-weather Christians, then we're going to confront apostates, then we're going to confront faithful Christians. And really, the last one's more of an encouragement. I want to start by saying that in the last year and a half, many fair-weather Christians have been exposed. A Barna study done last year showed that after the initial lockdowns of 2020, one-third, or 33% of practicing Christians, man I'm using scare quotes a lot today, practicing Christians never returned to church. 33%. And another 16% say that they transitioned to only attending church online, which I can't be clear enough about this, is not church. There's no such thing as an online church. It's an oxymoron. The Greek word for church literally means the gathering. You can't separate and gather at the same time. There is no online communion. There is no online baptism. You can watch a sermon online, but you can't be part of a biblically defined congregation online. I hear too many people, pastors in particular, saying that we need to figure out what the new normal is, right? What does the new normal look like for churches? What church practice is normed by the apostolic church? We form what we do here around what we see done in the New Testament, not what works best in our present moment. We have no authority to redefine what a church is. So according to these statistics, nearly 50% of American Christians stopped attending churches. They stopped, 50%. And... Lord willing, they found their way back and repented and trusted in Christ and landed in church somewhere. But as of when this study was done last year, they had not. Fifty percent had not. In response to a small amount of cultural slash governmental pressure, they gave in. Uh, in personal conversations I've had with local Kansas City pastors. I've heard attendance drops. I've heard of attendance drops around 40 to 60 percent, so right in the area of this study. What this shows us is that there is a plague of fair-weathered Christianity in America. Again, here is what the inspired author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and shared of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, And the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Let me explain what's going on here behind the scenes of this text. In around 49 AD, so nearly 20 years, if you're doing the math, nearly 20 years before this letter to the Hebrews was written, the gospel had reached Rome and converts were being made in Rome. Well what we know is that Rome had a large Jewish population at the time, second only to Jerusalem itself. And so if you're familiar with the persecution that Christians faced at the hands of the Jews in Jerusalem, just think uh, of texts like Acts 5.28 when the Jews say to the apostles, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, right, the name of Christ. And what's Peter's response? Well, he starts teaching them about Jesus. He starts teaching them about Christ. The result is shown then in verse 33, that same chapter. It says, When they heard this, the Jews who were denying Christ, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the, Jews were wanting to, the unconverted Jews were wanting to kill the Christians. Now just transplant that context over to Rome. You have an idea of what's going on there in 49 AD. The only difference is that in Rome all this is happening directly under Caesar's nose. Caesar is in Rome. He's seeing this all happen. So Emperor Claudius, who was the Caesar of the time, he had enough of it. He had enough of that uh, back and forth fighting between Jews, unconverted Jews, and Christians. And he doesn't fully formally recognize Christianity as a group of people yet. Instead he sees all of this is simply Jews fighting with another sect of Jews. So he bans all Jews, including Christians, from Rome. The Roman historian, Suetonius writes, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, or Christ, he, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. The expulsion here lasted five years, until the death of Claudius in 54 AD. And after this, the Jews and the Christians slowly made their way back to Rome. But now they are faced with a decision. They had spent five years, five years, in forced exile from their home. Do they dare risk it again? And especially the Christians, because in the decree, Christ had been identified by the Roman government as a persona non grata, as an unacceptable person, specifically as an instigator, even. Do they continue to unashamedly follow him considering the cost? Do they dare proclaim him boldly in Rome lest they anger the Jews and consequently draw the attention of the Romans once again? The answer that the writer of Hebrews gives us is absolutely, absolutely. You see, their solution was to act like Jews. This is what they were doing. They they, they were acting like Jews in public. That's what they had come to. They said, okay, we're going to act like Jews in public and then reserve our Christianity just for church. This way they could avoid the ramifications of following Christ. But here's what the author says. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. If you go out and live as though you don't know Christ and then on Sunday come in and repent of living like a non-believer all week, we were trying to do something that is impossible. Their actions were communicating that you could be saved one day and then not saved and then saved again but then Monday rolls around and you're not saved again. That's not how it works. Christ died once for sins. Romans 6 9 through 11. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Their Christianity was was bipolar. It was on again, off again. But that's not true Christianity. It can't be because Christ died to sin once for all. Either you're saved in christ and living for christ or you're not hebrews 6 7 through 8 identifies these two types of people both who claim to be christians he writes for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from god it's one type of people right they say they're christians they're receiving the blessing the rain that falls on them from god professing christians produce a good crop. Then he says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So according to Hebrews 6, the church has received a heavenly gift, namely the Holy Spirit, verse 4, and the Word of God, verse 5. The grace conveyed by the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Word of God should be evident in the church and it should have a powerful effect on those gathered. Either it lands on fertile soil and unregenerate hearts, and it produces a useful crop, or it lands on infertile soil, unregenerate hearts, and it bears thorns and thistles. So the clear question is, is your life producing useful fruits? Do you see uh, real biblical convictions developing in your life? And are you willing to live for christ regardless of the opposition that you face or are you ashamed of the gospel do you hide the fact that you are a christian from those around you hoping that they don't notice and think then that you're strange or that you're a troublemaker or a hater that you're homophobic xenophobic transphobic or whatever maybe you're okay with them knowing you're a christian as long as it's the tame cultural Christianity that has no convictions, the kind that doesn't ruffle any feathers, doesn't make anyone feel uncomfortable, and keeps Caesar happy. Well, Matthew 15, verse 8, describes these kinds of people, this kind. Here Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 7, 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hebrews 6 verse 8 says, If it doesn't produce a useful crop, then its end is to be burned. So examine yourselves to determine which group describes you. Is your life bearing a useful crop or are you bearing thorns and thistles? Is it marked by Christ exaltation or is it marked by self-preservation? Or perhaps you're hearing this and you aren't a professing Christian. At least not anymore. You're an apostate. You've left the faith. Proving, as we said, that you were never in the faith. I'll be brief on this point, but know that it is deadly important. If you have rejected the grace of Jesus Christ, then you have rejected your only means of salvation. Now I don't believe that this text means that once you have rejected the gospel one time, then it's impossible for you to repent in the future. But what is clear is that if you have been given a clear presentation of the gospel time and time again to the point that it is clear to you, maybe you could even recite it yourself, maybe you have recited it to others, if you then reject that very salvation, then you are demonstrating that you have a hard, unregenerate heart. Because none other than a depraved mind can come to church day after day, Sunday after Sunday, hear the glories of Jesus, taste of the heavenly gift, share in the work of the Holy Spirit, and taste the goodness of the Word of God, and then leave and say, Cursed be Christ. Only a blind and wicked heart can do this. The man or woman who is unbound from the captivity of sin tastes and sees that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The person who has a regenerate heart, just someone who's unbound from the deception of sin, tastes the Lord. He tastes these things. He shares in these things, and he says, oh, these are good. But the reprobate tastes and rejects the Lord because the glorious presence of Jesus exposes their sins. So if this describes you, if you are an apostate, then know that your judgment will be exceedingly great. 2nd Peter 2:20 For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first It's a terrible thing to stare into the face of God and revile him To do so places you in an even worse position than before This is not to say that those who sin in ignorance won't be judged will, but that the judgment of those who possess the knowledge of God and reject him all the more, they will receive an even greater judgment. Luke 12, 47-49. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what uh, deserved a beating will receive a like beating. Both are being punished here. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. So you have been given grace upon grace. Even now you are offered an opportunity to repent. Not partially repent, but to fully repent. To turn your life over to the one who can save your soul. If you are an apostate, then pray to God that he would do a miracle in your heart and that He would break through your sin and rebellion, and that He would allow you to once more taste of the mercies of the Lord, and this time to find them to be exceedingly good, far greater than the trifles of sin to which you so foolishly clutched. Abandon those while an opportunity for repentance remains, and turn to Him who is worthy. Turn to Jesus once for all. Cling to Him and don't let go. For to reject the gospel message has only one end. Hebrews 6, 8 But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Eternal hell awaits the one who sins. And if it's even possible to imagine, an even greater punishment awaits the one who outright rejects the Son of God. Now before we conclude the sermon, I have one last word of exhortation. And this is to the faithful Christians, to the true Christians. Faithful Christians should prepare for foul weather. They should ensure that their faith is their own. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Ensure that your roots go deep into Christ, so that when the storms come, and they will come, you won't be found merely sharing in the Holy Spirit, right? or tasting of the goodness of the Word of God. But you want to be found filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be found consuming the Word of God. We discussed the past context of the book of Hebrews, right, and the persecution that they faced; these Christians faced at the hand of Emperor Claudius. A five-year displacement for Christians and Jews from Rome. Now, I don't know how much the human author of Hebrews knew about future events. Right? I believe that he's given a portion of Revelation which he wrote down. I'm sure he had some sense of what was about to happen, but we can be certain that the divine author of Hebrews, right, the Holy Spirit, understood that in roughly six years from the time that this book was written, from the time that Hebrews was written, these Christians in Rome and all over, really, under the rule of Nero would experience the greatest persecution that the church would ever face. This was the great tribulation described in the book of Revelation. This was an attempt to eradicate the Christian population from the face of the world under the rule of Nero. The Roman historian Tacticus describes the persecution of Christians that would soon face them, that they would soon face in six years. This is what he writes Following Emperor Nero's command, let Christians be exterminated, they, the Christians, were made the subject of sport. They were covered with hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve for evening lights." This is far, what's described here, is far from fair weather. And a taste of the heavenly gift would not sustain them. They needed all of Christ, all of the Spirit, all of His Word, They needed to say with Jeremiah, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. There are trials around the corner for you, Christian. If you think masks and fines and and forced church closings and vaccine mandates and pastors in Canada being jailed, if you think that's bad, it has the potential to get a lot worse. But just like these Christians, how they faced smaller trials in preparation for larger trials, so we should use the smaller trials to prepare for larger trials. We should use this time to prepare for foul weather. Some will store up food, some will store up supplies, some will store up ammunition, and that's all good. But that is not what we're talking about here. First and foremost, you need to store up the Word of God in your heart and mind. The one who stores up the word has something that no one can take away, right? They have a hiding place that is not in this world. Psalm 32, 6 through 10. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rushing of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. A fair-weather Christian will be beat up by the waves of persecution, even just by gentle winds of social exclusion. He will have no hiding place. He will have few joys to cling to, for he only knows simple doctrine. And even that he struggles to apply. The apostate has abandoned his stronghold altogether, proving himself to be a false convert, someone who, after sampling of the glories of Christ, holds him up again to contempt, rejecting his kindness and his grace, and in doing this, reserves for himself even greater punishment in the life to come. In all of this, the true Christian, though, is identified by his unwavering commitment to Christ. He is enraptured by the gospel. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is hungry for the Word of God. He reads, and he prays, and he applies the Scriptures. And therefore, he is not shaken by the winds of persecution, but he finds his hiding place in the Lord. I pray that describes you. As we close, I want to encourage you again to examine yourselves to this end. Are you operating as a fair-weather Christian? As one who serves the Lord when it is convenient for you, but leaves him behind at the first sign of opposition? Or, are you intentional about your pursuit of God? Are you serious about knowing and trusting in His Word? Do you daily run to Him in prayer? Are you diligently seeking spiritual maturity? And do you have a solid foundation in the Lord, a hiding place where you can go to God and withstand foul weather? If you identify more with the former description than the latter, then you are in grave danger. And it is time for you to get serious about your Christian faith because the alternative is is devastatingly grim. So let us not just taste of the goodness of the Lord, but let us instead say with the psalmist, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise You.
1: Why should I sorrow anymore? I trust to say you're slain And safe beneath the sheltering cross Unmoved I shall remain Let Satan and this world now rage you now allure The promises in Christ are made Immutable and sure Infallible is now my spirit's trust I know that he who spoke the word is faithful True and just He'll bring me on my way unto my journey's end He'll be my Father and my God My Savior and my friend
2: on this earth near, nor out in the universe far. No created thing could ever separate or tear us apart. He who promised is faithful, for He has saved so. Who could reverse it? I could never no, never doubt.
1: So all my doubts and fears shall wholly flee away, and every mournful night of tears be turned to joyous day. All day.